turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 10 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have your own copy in that black Pew Bible in front of you, uh, it's on page 942, 943. We're covering a lot of, of text today. Almost half the chapter, uh, 10th chapter of Romans and the, the whole chapter of chapter 11. We're finishing Romans for a period of time. We're coming back to that later, but we got a whole... A bunch of territory to cover. So I want to begin with this question. What is the most important thing about you? Think about that for just a moment. What is the most important thing about you when you think about yourself for just a moment? Is it your attributes? Your brains? Your beauty? Your brawn? Is it your abilities? Your your music abilities or your athletic abilities or your business sense or, or your academics? What's most important about you? Your family, your relationships that you have, your heritage, your position maybe, your job, your place in the community, your place in the church or your financial position. Is that the most important thing about you? A.W. Tozer, a great theologian, says this, what comes to my, our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, we move to what we worship or what we conceive about God. How do you see God? Do you see Him as benevolent? Do you see Him as gracious? Do you see Him as merciful? Do you see Him as powerful? Do you see Him as, as just? How do you view God? That's the most important thing about you, Tozer would say. But as we've been looking, there's these plans that God has. And we can understand a portion of those plans. But we can't understand all of those things, and so we make our own plans. The Scripture says in Proverbs 16, 9, that we make our plans, but the Lord, the Lord determines our steps. So He's got this overarching plan for every one of us, and we, in our understanding of it, have to fit into His story. Do you realize His story is history? It's all about Him and what He has been doing throughout history from creation until now. What's He been doing in His people? So today we come to this end of this particular section of Romans and, and we really haven't solved the age-old debate of whether God chooses us or, or we choose Him whether it's God's sovereignty that causes us to come into the family of God, to His kingdom, or whether it's this our own free will, our own choice. Because I think as we ponder all of those things, it's both. And Scripture holds those things in tension for a purpose because God wants us to know that He's active. And as we sang about, even though we don't see it all around us, we know God is moving and working. We don't always understand the circumstances around us, but we can trust what he's doing. And it's our responsibility to fit into his story. It's really the story we find ourselves in. And so today, as we 
I look at this passage of Scripture a little closer. We're not going to read all of those verses, but we're going to read a few in chapters 10 and, and, and chapter 11. I want you to consider uh, just what's the next step for you in this plan? We all, we'll always talk about that, but we don't always get to it. What, what's next for you in your faith journey, in, in your portion, this portion of the story? So we, we think about our oikos. Who's the next group of people that you can identify and reach if you're not through with the, the group you've started with and continue with them? Keep praying. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep asking. Never stop in that endeavor. That's what the Apostle Paul did. And as we begin in chapter 10, verse 18, I want us to look at a few verses here, and then we'll continue on. If you have your bulletin on the back of that, you can follow along. There's so much to cover in such little time, I'm going to get right to the point. The point number one is this. Not everyone who hears and understands the Lord's plan accepts it, especially accepts it immediately. Now, what's going to happen here in this section is Paul is going to talk about his people some more and how they have every advantage in the world to believe in Jesus, and yet they reject him. Look, in verse 18 of chapter 10, after Paul had said, so faith comes from hearing that, that is hearing the good news about Christ, verse 18 says, but I, I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yeah, they have. Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the world and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Again, Paul says, yes. They did. For even in the times of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. And later Isaiah spoke boldly for God saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God's own people, God's chosen people, God said, all day long, I opened my arms to them. And they were disobedient and rebellious. You see, God had been showing his people all along through his law and, and through the, the commandments, through his covenants and his promises and the prophets, and he showed his people all sorts of truth about who he was and what he was going to do. And yet they heard it, they understood it, and they rejected it. I don't understand that. Until I come to a place like this, and I, and I know, I know in a, a, a room this size with this many people in it, there are people in here who have not fully devoted themselves to Jesus Christ. And they come, a lot of them come week in and week out. And a lot of you folks come and you, and you hear the message and you understand the message, but you don't receive the message. You don't accept it. As we talked about that illustration, you don't get in the wheelbarrow. You don't trust God. You don't allow Him to lead you in every aspect of your life. Now, I know all of us uh, wander and stray, and I understand that none of us are perfect even after we come to faith in Christ. But we have to make sure that we're on the trajectory that God wants us to be on upward, trying to please Him, trying to be who He's called us to be, trying to live 
in forgiveness and grace and extend that to other folks. You see, our responsibility, if I could say, have this first point, just one word, is to share. It's not our responsibility for results, for people to come to know Christ. Our job is to share. It's Jesus' job to save. That's why my favorite definition of evangelism is this. One beggar showing another beggar where to get bread. Because that's what we are. That's who we are. We know that everybody we share with, young people, hear me at this point, everybody you invite is not going to come to D now. But that doesn't keep you from inviting because you don't know when that person who says, well, I guess I'll go, just kind of off the, the brink, might have their life changed this weekend. But it goes not just for young people, it goes for all of us as we think about how we continue to live our faith out before people, how we're better examples of faith and more effective in our witness. So it's not our responsibility to save people. That takes all the pressure off of us. Paul wants us to know that. But he also wants us to know that even those people who are disobedient and rebellious, as verse 21 talks about, his own people, the people you continue to share with and continue to reject, God's arms are still open wide. Isn't that a beautiful picture of grace? Even though Israel continues to reject God, God continues to love Israel. Isn't it true of all of us? It's not just the, the disobedient and re rebellious, but it's especially the disobedient and rebellious that he loves because that's all of us. We're all in the same sin boat. And that boat is going to sink apart from the grace and mercy of God. You understand that? We're all headed to hell. The default mode of our world is hell unless we accept what Jesus has done for us on the cross and covered us with his precious blood to cover our sin. Because heaven's a perfect place. And the only way we get there is to be perfect. We blew that a long time ago, didn't we? The other way we get there is to trust someone who's done it for us. His name is Jesus, and so we, we continue to share that message. And Paul continued to share that with his people. He always go to that synagogue first. But he also recognized that God had opened up his plan to so many other people. And that's the second thing I want you to see. The Lord never uh, leaves himself without a witness chosen by grace. Look what Paul says. I asked then, has God rejected his own people? No way. The nation of Israel, of course not. I myself am, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people, whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah, the prophet, complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, I, they have killed your prophets and torn down your, your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace. His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their own good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is free and undeserved. 
So the second thing I want you to see here is the Lord never leaves himself without a witness. Chosen by grace. If you want to talk about election and, and chosen and predestination, God has always had a, a group of people that he has chosen to be a witness for him. It was the people Israel, but later on it's the Gentiles. And Paul says he hadn't given up on, on, on the Israelites, but he's also opened it up to other people. He always has a witness chosen by grace. Now, do you understand grace? We talk sometimes about free grace. That's really redundant. Because if it's not free, it's not grace. You understand that grace is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. It's his undeserved favor. It's, it's the knowledge and the understanding that God is not against you, but God is for you. And he wants you to flourish. And he wants you to, to succeed in life. And he's got a plan. And that plan is first and foremost to receive Jesus as your Savior. And then after that, it's to serve Him and understand that all of life, all of your job, all of your energy, all of your resources is to line up with that to be leveraged for Him and His kingdom. He's top priority. Well, there's so many things in our world that distract us from, from our witness, but we are reminded there's nothing better to give ourselves to. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think if I, I, I'm, I'm really not worthy. I, I know you think that's weird. I'm a preacher, and I'm up in front of you every week. And, but I, I think I'm not worthy to be a, an ambassador of the Lord. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, and I think, oh, Lord, I'm busy. I got a lot of stuff to do, so I'm not going to pray as much today. I'm not going to read your word as much today and be devoted to you. And then, then I always find when I'm in that mode and I don't center toward Christ and center my heart toward him, then I'm a little snippy with everybody. Anybody in here snippy? Don't, don't look at other people because you're, you're probably... I, I get a little uh, cranky, you know. I, I get like those commercials. I need my Snickers or I get a little uh, hangry or whatever I get, you know. Anybody? You know what that's like, don't you? And, and so I, I come to the end of the day and I, I come before the Lord and I say, Lord, I'm not worthy to, become, to even come into your presence. I've made a mess today of things. I wasn't in your word. I wasn't in, in prayer. And I, I didn't treat people the way they should be treated. People who are created in your image, I was a little snippy with, cranky with. I don't deserve to be used by you. You know what he almost always does? He nudges me and says, Kyle, do you think because you pray and because you read the Scripture and, and because you, you, you treat people right, you love people, that somehow that makes you worthy to come into my presence anyway? Don't you realize, Kyle, that when you have that kind of mindset, you don't understand yourself and you don't understand me and you certainly don't understand grace because grace is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself it's not about trying harder this is the hardest thing in the Christian life there is discipline now don't don't get me wrong there are certain Christian disciplines that will help you grow in your faith the word and uh, prayer and church attendance God's people are always important for you to grow in your faith always those are are certain spiritual disciplines that we do, but understand this, that all growth that happens is God's grace. God doing for you what you can't do 
And you've got to depend on that, and you've got to lean into that, and you've got to become really what I call a grace junkie. I'm addicted to grace, and I want you to be addicted to grace. Understand that it's His goodness and His mercy and His grace that allows us to be who He wants us to be, to be the witness He's called us to be. And He will always preserve a witness for Him by His grace. And the third thing is this. As we look at this, this passage of Scripture again, I, I want to start in verse 7, and we're not going to read all of, of this particular section because it gets rather confusing about being grafted in to the family, but all, it, all it's talking about is there was a certain number of Jews who were uh, removed from the kingdom be, because they were God's chosen people, and then they removed themselves, actually. They hardened their own hearts, and then God hardened their hearts, and then because of that, Gentiles were grafted into the family. So consider this before we look at this particular scripture. If, if the Jews, if by and large all of them had accepted Jesus as the Messiah in that day and age when Jesus came, then Christianity would, would probably have been confined just to, to that little section of the world because they did what they were supposed to do. But that's not what happened. The Christianity spread all over the world because God demonstrated his mercy and the doors were open wide to not just the Jewish people, but to you and me, to the Gentiles. So sometimes we think, well, Lord, what are you doing? Well, one, we should never think that, because <laughs> God knows what he's doing. And, and yet sometimes we ask our, ourselves, why, God? Why did this happen? Why does that happen to, to children who were hungry? Why does that, that happen in, in other parts of the world that are so poor? Why, why does that happen... In my family, why did you have to take them to cancer? Or why did you, why? I think a great understanding and response to that is, is what we're about to see. So that his mercy can be displayed in all situations, in all circumstances. God doesn't cause all the, the evil and the suffering that happened in our world for sure. Most of the time we cause that. But God demonstrates his mercy to all who would call on him. And so we look at verse 7 of chapter 11 and begin by looking this way. And so this is a situation most of the people of Israel have not found favor of, have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so were the Jewish people's hearts hardened. And, and that's how, how it goes. God gives us opportunities, an opportunity. And he's patient with us. And his arms are open wide, but there comes a day, there comes a time, and we don't know when that day or when that time is, when that patience is done. And God hardens the people's hearts here. In this particular situation, the old rabbi used to tell people, repent one day before you die. And his, uh, what do you call little rabbi folks, little protege, whatever, they, they, his followers said, rabbi, we don't know when we're going to die. And then he says, repent today. Repent today. We don't know when another opportunity to respond to the Lord is coming. We don't know when 
He's coming back. We, we've got to learn to stay ready all the time, to be urgent all the time. And, if, and so when we look at this, the rest of this section, we see, verse 8, as the Scriptures say, God has put them in a deep sleep to this day. He has shut their eyes so they do not see, talking about the people of Israel, and closed their ear, ears so they do not hear. We don't want to go there. Verse 9 says, likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare. Now, their bountiful table was full of promises and covenants with God and law and the prophets and the Messiah even came from among them. But, but it became a trap that makes them think, all is well. Hey, we're part of the Jewish heritage. We've got Abraham's DNA. We're good with God. That wasn't it. Not at all. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. Did, God, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Boy, that's, those are some harsh words about the people of Israel, right? About people who are once the, the people of God. By and large, Paul says, of course not. They were disobedient. So God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. So what he's talking about ultimately in the whole scheme of God's plan is that the people of Israel are going to come back together. There's going to be a great revival among the people when Jesus comes back. The, the, the people that God originally chose, he has not disowned. But what he also is saying here is that because they rejected, because of one people's rejection, the doors are open wide for other people to experience mercy. And that's us. Have you? You see, mercy is the flip side of grace. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, what we don't deserve. And mercy is God withholding his judgment from us. Mercy. Best illustrated, if you, if you still have your Bibles, grab your, your copy and turn to, to Luke 18. I want to share this illustration with you from uh, probably a familiar text in Luke 18 the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's, the, here's what mercy is all about in this particular section. And really it deals with the difference between those who think they're okay with God, those good church kind of people who are trying to be moral and upright, and those folks who are scoundrels, dirty, rotten, no good sort of people. And look at this twist in the plot. Here, Jesus tells this story once upon a time. He doesn't actually start a story that way. In verse 9, he says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. You know people like that? Boy, I don't like to be around people like that. Self-righteous sort of people. Pharisaical sort of people who think they're a little bit above everybody else, who think they're a little bit better than everybody else. Who, who maybe have that impression because they go to church all the time. I don't know. 
When we, I'm not talking about anybody in this place, by the way. I just, I just think sometimes we don't have a, a proper concept of ourselves and who we are before God and Almighty God and how we so do not deserve to be before Him. So Jesus tells this story about these two men and He picks the, the extremes of society. The Pharisee, who everybody thought had it all together kept the law. Look at it. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector, a cheater, scumbag, stole from people, gave it to the despised Romans. Nobody could stand tax collectors. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and, and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. King James says he prayed to himself. That's what he's doing. He's telling God how great he is. It doesn't match up much before God, does it? Now, is there anything wrong with fasting? No. But he's taking it on as a badge, like he's better than everybody else. Is there anything wrong with tithing? Absolutely not. We're going to take the offering in a little bit. I hope you don't think there's anything wrong with tithing. <laughs> but again, we don't tithe to gain other people's approval or even gain God's approval. We tithe out of the generosity of our hearts because we know how much God has given us. That's not his attitude at all. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me for I'm a sinner. God's mercy is open to everybody. Verse 14, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see the, the switch there? We think that the good person is the one that's going to be right with God. But God sees the humble person as the one who's able to be right with him. And this is the prayer that all of us ought to pray. It's the Jesus prayer. Oh, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Now, what that word mercy literally means is to be the propitiation. Be the propitiation for me. Now, that's a big old religious word. I'm going to explain to you because it's the essence of the gospel. I've said that word before. I, I just like saying it. Will you, will you say it with me? Propitiation? Propitiation. Doesn't it just sound good? You know what it is? It's the wrath of God appeased by a gift. That's what it means. And so what the, the tax collector is saying, Lord, be the propitiation for me. Pro, propitiate for me. 
satisfy your own wrath through some gift. And you and I know who that gift is. But this whole idea comes from the Old Testament, the, the mercy seat of God that, that covered the Ark of the Covenant. That's where they sprinkled the blood one time a year so everybody's sins would be covered. And so it, it's literally to, to be the mercy seat for me, God. Cover my sin because I can't do anything about it myself. Be the propitiation for me. Have mercy on me. You come to that place where you recognize apart from God you're headed to hell. You're headed to destruction. You're headed to corruption. You're in bondage to sin. And yet because of what He's done for us, He set us free through the precious blood of Jesus that He no longer looks down upon us based upon the law which was in that um, Ark of the Covenant under that mercy seat. And we all are not judged by the law any longer. We're judged by the precious blood of Jesus that covers all our sin and shame. And so because the, the Jewish people rejected that, it's been open to us, but what good does it do to be open to us if we don't accept that gift? If we don't receive that gift? We finally come to this end of this section I want you to see in, in Romans 11 beginning with verse 33. And this is where all of this theology that's happened in Romans 9 through 11 comes, becomes a, a doxology. You know what the doxology is. Some of you have been around a long time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. And that's what this, this section of theology turns into. Praise of God. Because God's plan is perfect and He knows what He's doing. And even though we can't understand it completely, we can still bring Him glory. We're the Fourth point now. I don't know if you got that third point or not. The rejection of the Lord's plan by some opens the opportunity to experience mercy for others. That's us. And, and the fourth thing is that, is that we, as we look at, at not understanding God completely, we don't understand all of His plans, but we, we know the main parts clearly. He's made that clear. He's left heaven to come to earth on a rescue mission. That's incarnation we talked about last week. And in that rescue mission, He lives the perfect life to become the perfect sacrifice. He took our place. That's atonement. And He validated all He taught and all He said through the resurrection. That's the final piece of that. And that's what we're going to move toward as we move toward the cross and beyond in our next sermon series. I hope you'll be a part of that because it's essential to understand what was going on in the plan of God that we, we see all of what He's doing clearly, but we also trust when we don't understand. And so verse 33, let's continue to look. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions. 
and his ways. For who can know the thoughts of God? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who gives him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. Those of of us who believe, let's repeat that last little section together. All glory to him forever. Amen. All glory to him forever. Amen. As we look at this section, we see God is it's so much higher than us. His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. It, it reminds me of the scene with Job. He, he talks about with Job after he's gone on through all the, the suffering that Job went through. And Job brings questions to God. And God asks questions of Job. They're found in, in Job 38. And just again, just a few of those I want you to see. In verse 38 it says, Where were you? God asked Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you? Have you commanded the morning, verse 12, have you commanded, ever commanded the morning to appear and cause the dawn to rise in the east? You think about who God is for just a moment. Every day. His mercies are new every morning as we see that sunrise. Now, I, know, I realize some of us don't get up when the sun rises. When some of us, uh, have, the sun has already risen, but some of you see it every single day. It's amazing, isn't it? I've seen it a lot on Tuesdays. I don't, I don't see it much else, on, but on Tuesday, I see it on Tuesdays when I get up at 6 and, and have with a, a meeting with the men. Sometimes I see it other times. I've got to be there early at the hospitals. But it's amazing, is it not? And I always, I always see the sunset. God does that every single day. And if you stop to think about it scientifically for just a moment, if, if the world is just off its axis just a little bit, then we burn up or we freeze out. God's in control of that. And he says to Job, who gives intentions or intuition to the heart and instinct to the mind? Who is wise enough to count all the clouds and who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the parched ground is dry and the soil has hardened into clods? We need to be praying that God would tilt the water jars of heaven, don't we? Can you cause it to rain? Now we've tried. Pretty weak effort, really. God brings that. And we are reminded how great God is and we don't understand completely all that's going on in our world. We try and we should seek, but we should also trust. We should also trust that God in His infinite wisdom knows what's going on because it's like this. Isn't life a lot like this? Have you ever felt like this? Life's like a big puzzle, a big jigsaw puzzle, and 
whoever's in charge threw away the box and you don't get to see the picture. And you're trying to put this puzzle together and we got a piece here and we got a piece there and if we're really fortunate, we might put four or five pieces together. But for the most part, we won't solve that puzzle. We won't put that all together. We're like little ants on a painting of Rembrandt or somebody like that. Think about that. Now we're getting a little sophisticated here. But you think we're, we're little ants in the dark parts of a Rembrandt painting. We see the dark blues or blacks or, or browns or grays. And, and we don't recognize that just around the canvas, just around the corner, there's a brighter color coming. But we don't see that so much. But it's those dark colors that make those bright colors even more beautiful, isn't it? When we think about the suffering and the difficulties we've been through and how God has seen us through those things and how rich our faith is in Him because of those things. Who can know the mind of God? Paul continues, but he says, everything came from Him. Everything exists by His power and is intended for His glory. We don't know it com- what it, what's going on completely, but we know we're here. Alive and well to bring him glory. You know what brings him glory? Just a few things. Surrender. A recognition that he's God. He knows what he's doing. And you're not. You trust him. You know what brings him glory? Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who believes in him, anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Faith. Do you believe? Do you believe that he's worthy to be surrendered to because of his plan? And then you're surrendering and you're continuing to walk by faith because the third part is crucial to all of us who are Christians and not. What brings him glory is commitment. Giving yourself back to him. He's your creator, but he wants you to give yourself back to him in love. He wants you to choose him. So you can do that today. You can choose to follow him. If you've already done that in a public sort of way, You don't need to do that again. But maybe you need to take a next step of baptism. Acknowledging God before other folks. Or maybe you need to take a next step of getting plugged in. In a life group or or the next step of, of joining this church because God is calling you here. But first and foremost, make sure that you have taken the first crucial step of faith. Let God save your soul. And you've cried out like the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments we have. Lord, it seems so brief trying to unpack these huge truths. But Father, through your wisdom and your spirit and your anointing, I know you can communicate even through me. 
So, Father, I ask that you would, would prick the hearts of people in here who don't know you. That you'd show yourself to be a God of grace and mercy, a God of patience, but also a God of justice, fairness, a God who of urgency. Father, I pray that if there are people here that they not wait another day to come into a relationship with you and enter into your kingdom. That they surrender, believe, place their faith in you and choose to follow you this day. With a simple prayer, just like we're praying now. Oh, Father, I know I need you. I've blown it. I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross, Jesus, to forgive my sin, to cover it. And I choose this day to follow you as best I know how. Father, lead other people. As you see fit, of course, always, that there are people in this place that, that need to be moving forward in their faith journey. Lead them, Lord. Because the most important thing we about us is what we, not just what we think about you, but what you think about us. We want to be covered, Lord, always with your blood. In your holy name we pray. Amen.